Welcome everyone to Embody Self Tools for Conscious Living. My name is Michelle Champaka, and I'm excited to have a special guest. We will get started in just a couple of minutes, just waiting for him to come into the live studio. Thank you. Hi, Michael. Welcome. Great to have you here. Hi, how are you, Michelle? I'm great. I'm great. Uh, so we're about to get started in about a minute, uh, although it looks like we've got about, oh, 201 people on this call today. So <laughs> awesome. Awesome. How does it get any better than that? Let me just get ready. <laughs> I know. Let me just get uh, your bio ready, and I'd love to introduce Michael Turner, um, our special guest today on Embodying Your Higher Self Tools for Conscious Living. Michael is an advanced pre-monastic Buddhist trainer, deep meditation teacher, mindfulness consultant, resilience counselor, spiritual life coach and a full-time Buddhist renunciate. Wow, Michael, you are many things. <laughs> awesome, and that's the short awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Michael uh, also specializes in working with advanced practitioners who are close to awakening, but need help to attain it. In addition, he works with people who are already partially enlightened but need an experienced teacher to make continued prog progress along the path toward full enlightenment. Michael Turner also offers spiritual life coaching to those who don't specifically identify themselves as Buddhists yet find themselves keenly interested in mindful living, but are still struggling uh, with cultivating a more peaceful, contented and joyful life. Wow. Um, so great to have you here. Thank you so much for taking the time out, Michael. And how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking. And it's a real honor to share this time with you. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm, I'm really happy to have you here. And I thought we could kind of kick off with uh, you sharing a little bit about your your path and, and what was the catalyst in your life to get you on this path to become a Buddhist monk. I would, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear more about, about your, uh, your journey. It is a tremendously long story, uh, but let me see if I could boil it down <laughs> to just a couple of minutes because it really does start when I was a young child. Um, so growing mm. up, I always felt a certain disconnect from uh, the world that I saw around me. Uh, I always had kind of a sensitivity to recognizing the violence that I saw. I never quite understood, even as a child, you know, six, seven, eight years old, why people treated the way people treated other people the way that they did with a level of either selfishness or lack of generosity or really on the other side of the spectrum with anger, with um, selfishness, with violence. So even at a very young age, I was deeply exploring what I thought were, you know, fundamental truths to the human condition. And I don't know how this wow. came to be, but um, when I was around eight years old, I got introduced to the notion of philosophy and philosophers. And I spent a lot of time as a child in the library, if you remember what those are. <laughs> And um, I can't remember the books, but I was given, I guess, books that were appropriate for children that were exploring philosophy. I don't really understand, but I remember getting access to Schopenhauer and Descartes and Plato and Aristotle and Hume and realizing that even at such a young age that 
these people were speaking a language that had resonated deeply within myself that I wasn't hearing outside from others. They were really highlighting that humans on some fundamental levels treating, treat one another not so nicely. Um, and they were really good at pointing out all of the different ways that humans weren't treating one another kindly or compassionately. But they all had different ideas on why that was. And very few of them had any kind of way out. Flash forward uh, to college, and I was triple majoring and double minoring in various things that had nothing at all to do with philosophy, but I kept um, my philosophical studies as just kind of like a, a side hobby, if you will. And as I was exploring all of these philosophers, both ancient and contemporary and everything in between, I somehow happened upon the philosophy of some guy named Siddhartha Gautama. You know, we more commonly refer to him as the Buddha. What was really interesting about him and the philosophy that he was teaching, and I think it's important to highlight at this point that Buddhism, as it was taught by Siddhartha or the Buddha, was never meant to be a religion. Uh, that happened hundreds and hundreds, five, six hundred years after the passing of the Buddha, as Buddhism made its way across India and into the Middle East and into China and so forth, and just interwove itself with pre-existing religions, philosophies, and so forth. What the Buddha was actually teaching was a philosophy of mind, a philosophy. How do we free ourselves from that undercurrent of anxiety that we experience in our day-to-day -day life, that undercurrent of insecurity or really current of anger, impatience, intolerance? You know, and whether it's intolerance at others or intolerance for ourselves, where we are, what we would like to be, that was the philosophy that he was teaching. And what made this philosophy that I exposed myself to in college so different from all of these other philosophers of the Western world and also the Eastern world was that he boiled it all down to one thing. He said, yes, people behave in, in ways that are very harmful and unbeneficial and unskillful, but it all comes down to one thing craving, our craving for the things that we want, that we believe will make us happy, and the craving to be free of the things that we don't want, the things that we feel cause us unhappiness. And we can even boil it down further than that, because what drives craving for happiness and freedom from pain or unhappiness, but our egos. Our egos are at that chewy center of the misery that we feel. And misery, you know, it can be a strong word, but it could be everything from the loss of, you know, somebody that we care deeply about, or it could even be something as nuanced as just knowing that there's a mosquito in the room and that breaking our sense of ease, right? So, but he went further than that. He wasn't just stating that humans, you know, act uncompassionately or unskillfully. And he wasn't just saying that there's a source to this. He did something that most other philosophers and no other real philosopher actually did. He created a plan that says we can be free of this. And it's a gradual path. It's almost step by step. If you do this, you will experience this positive benefit. If you do that, you will experience this positive benefit. And if you keep doing this over time, you will find that the experience of discontentment, of anxiety, of anger, of impatience, of jealousy, of greed, of that general undercurrent of dissatisfaction that we're trying to satisfy through all of the different diversions and distractions or occupations or relationships that we have in our lives, we could start attenuating that and get to this place where we can actually slowly cultivate resilience, happiness, peace of mind. And the real trick to this, or the real, not trick, but the real benefit of this is that you don't have to experience full awakening or full enlightenment to reap the benefits of this. Because as you slowly start dialing down impatience or anger or insecurity, it gets naturally replaced with their opposites of peace of mind, security, contentment. So we can experience this as we're making progress along the path. So, you know, getting back to your question, how did I get onto this path? I think that kind of answers it, but how did I get to this advanced stage? So, you know, I was doing this in, in my early teens, you know, throughout my teenage years and into my 20s, but then I hit around 21, 22. 
And, you know, like I said, I'm triple majoring, I'm double minoring, and I'm doing this, you know, because I think that these things are going to make me happy. So now I'm chasing a career and I'm chasing, you know, scholastic achievement, professional achievement. I'm starting to make, you know, money. So I'm using that to travel or to buy things. And I kept with this philosophy of Buddhism, but it was strictly that academic. It was just knowledge, you know, reading about these four noble truths. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that resonates. That's interesting. But I stopped actually doing the work because, well, there are only so many hours in the day. And I was, I guess, quote unquote, living it up, so to speak. But what I didn't realize was as I continued to cultivate my philosophical bent on unhappiness and discontentment, I also continued to see the increasing violence in the world, wars, politics, you know, just even neighbors getting at one another, the traffic, road rage, drive-by shootings, all of these things. And I couldn't process it in a healthy way. What I, I, I had more insight and more vision of people being, let's just say, bad to one another, but I didn't have a solution. So what I started noticing myself was anger. I started noticing an increasing level of frustration with seeing people being bad to one another and feeling like I just knew better. I didn't know how to be better. I just knew better. And that started laying a foundation for frustration, impatience with society, and anger. So in my 20s, I wanted to get ahead of that. So I started seeking Western therapy. You know, I tried to find anger management specialists. And I, I met with three or four different ones. And ironically enough, the things that they were telling me weren't really addressing the core root of this, this seed of anger that was starting to take, you know, starting to grow. They were simply applying techniques that were ultimately going to suppress or repress my anger. And that's not healthy. And that's not a way that we can ultimately be free of our impatience, of our intolerance, of our lack of acceptance of anger. We simply grin and bear it for lack of a better phrase. And if that happens, then we will continue to suffer the result of the suppression of our anger until we find healthier ways to reframe, because it's not about rechanneling it either. It's not about taking that energy and shift it toward a different direction. It's about we need to actually cut the source of anger or impatience at its root. So ultimately and ironically, working with these three or four, you know, specialists in anger management only serves to make me more angry. Um, so in, <laughs> it's funny. Things <laughs> they happen. Um, so there was a point at which, and you know, coming at life from you know this this seed of anger, what I've learned over over the years, and as I now am a anger management specialist and using Buddhist techniques to work with those who have anger, what I've come to learn, and this can oftentimes be hard to recognize, is that angry people tend to have the biggest hearts. They're most easily hurt. And when they hurt, they lack those techniques to be able to channel that in healthy ways. So they, they rage out or, or if they don't rage out, they rage inward, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not always anger outward, it's anger inward. But whenever I behaved in the ways that, that caused or that, that were angry, I had to suffer the consequence. Either I lost friendships or it affected my ability to um, excel at my job, but ultimately I felt shame. I felt remorse, regret, and I would look in the mirror and I would just once again shake my head and be like, why do I do this? I know better, and yet, and yet I behave in ways that, that causes other people to repel. Um, and there was a, a fair amount of suffering involved in that. And I just got to this place around 28 years old where I said, you know what, I, I'm, I'm angry, and I've done so many things to try and curb this anger. Um, but it's not working. And as a result, I'm not accepting this part of me and I'm, I'm feeling shame and sadness and remorse and regret. I need to let part of this go so it's that I could stop suffering as much as I'm suffering. So at that point, I just kind of accepted, you know, I guess Michael is just an angry person and, and to stop fighting that. And to an extent that kind of took a bit of the weight off because if I, you know, got angry or I said something that offended somebody, you know, inadvertently or maybe even advertently, I stopped feeling the shame or the regret or the sadness. And I just kind of said, yeah, I'm just an angry person. And unfortunately, when I did that, um, I kind of allowed the anger to be, but also 
I cultivated, which is ultimately that saying that we hear so often in our society that people just can't change. And I kind of bought into that. And when we buy into that thought that people can't change, what that represents is a really limited viewpoint on our human potential for growth, for improvement, to simply be happy. So, and, and just as a flash forward or reflection into that, the person I am today is fundamentally different. I am not angry. I, the level of patience and compassion, both inward and outward that I've got, seems to be boundless. And the change that I've made simply by working with the root of anger, which is craving to be happy, craving to be understood, craving for my ego to be a, you know, recognized and treated considerately by, by others, working with that has ultimately and surprisingly very quickly turned that tide. So um, as I started becoming more and more of a Buddhist and really, and, and to kind of get back to the anger thing, um, I hit a point in my life where, and usually we have to hit a point in our lives when we realize the modality that we've been trying to live by and employ hasn't been working, that we're not getting that happiness, that satisfaction that we've been striving so hard to achieve, that there's something else out there that we're just not seeing. And usually there's a catalyst in our lives. You know, for me, it was, was getting married and then um, watching that marriage the relationships start to erode and not having the appropriate tools to work with that in a healthy way. And I realized, hey, you know, I need to stop meditating for relaxation. I need to start meditating to cultivate the skills that actually, cult, you know, lay a foundation for spiritual growth, for resilience, for patience, for happiness. And I need to stop reading this Buddhism stuff because I think it's super interesting and it resonates with me. I need to actually start applying this in my life in some fundamental ways because I don't know what else to do. And when I started doing those two things, meditating with the purpose of cultivating the foundation for change and actually practicing all of this knowledge that I had been collecting from this Buddha Dharma, very quickly, we're talking days, I started recognizing an improvement. And when I start measuring in months, I was literally changing as a person. And this all started coalescing around 2015. And who I am today versus who I was even, you know, just a couple of years ago is remarkable, absolutely remarkable. So I got to this place where I'm no longer married. Um, I left my wife and I got to this place where I realized this is the path that I want to live. This is what I want to do. I want to help others, but also I want to provide support and compassion in an otherwise um, unsupportive and uncompassionate world to those people who are living and dying and are in desperate need of somebody who could provide them with an ear and with a compassionate heart, but also tools and techniques to help them. And that meant, in, in, or means in a lot of ways, donning robes, living in a monastery, cultivating these skills even more deeply, and then providing my support to the local community of supporters that support the monastery, you know, in that, in that bilateral relationship where they provide me with the clothing, food, medicine, and shelter that I need such that I could continue cultivating progress along this path. But in return, I get to provide them with the spiritual support that they need in order to be able to manage through the day-to-day -day struggles of their lives. Now the story is much longer, but um, you know we only love, have so much time. <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love to just jump in and say yes. um, thank you for sharing that. That was a, um, an amazing story, and I think um, you know, as you know, I was a Buddhist for quite a while, and then I, I decided to stop uh, for different. I don't. I won't go into my story on that, but I still love a lot of the, and I still apply a lot of the principles of Buddhism in my own life especially the one about doing no harm because I feel I see so many people doing harm with their words and with their deeds and um, and there's that level of just complete unconsciousness and and so I think a lot of listeners are here because they they are seeking tools for how they can change their mindset change their life as you've just shared so is there a simple tool that you can share that will help them because a lot of people don't really know about meditation or they have trouble with meditation. So is there something you can share today that would help them with that? 
It's a super interesting question. So, you know, this, this Buddhism stuff is, is really deep. It's very subtle. Mm. And ultimately, it's a philosophy of mind. And it's kind of like I said early on in this conversation that at the root of so much of our problems is our ego. Our ego drives us to do things, to say things, to behave in ways because we want things or we don't want things that we ultimately wouldn't do, right? And our ego, we tell these stories that define it, that create it. And I like to liken our ego almost to an imaginary friend in the sense that in many ways, it has a will of its own. We can recognize it when we're sitting on the cushion and we're trying to meditate. And the one moment where we're actually trying to be free of thought and just kind of be, be peacefully, suddenly the mind just starts going beyond our control. It simply just starts thinking because like an imaginary friend, it seems to kind of have a will of its own. And when we're finally seated to meditate, to be free of thought, it realizes here's this opportunity where Michael isn't busy. He's not tasking, he's not doing laundry, he's not in traffic, he's not working, he's not diverting himself watching television or reading a book or doing this. Now is my time to express myself, to think. You know, we, we see that when we're showering or when we're brushing our teeth or we're driving from point A to point B doing something completely rote completely routine, where we get to not think. The brain just kind of takes over and we arrive at our destination that we've driven to, not even realizing how we got there because we've been lost in thought, thought that we had no control over. Or we lie down in bed trying to go to sleep and suddenly we can't stop thinking. So, you know, I, I, when I work with people who are interested in cultivating mindfulness in this path, um, I kind of have to course correct because it doesn't start with meditation. But people think that it does because you go on Google and you type Buddhism and you type mindfulness and, you know, meditation retreats come up by the, by the millions of search results, right? And when you type in, how do I become a Buddhist? It starts with meditation. But interestingly enough, when we go back to what the Buddha actually taught and, you know, we hear the word sutra, um, which is um, a Sanskrit word, um, but the original written language of Buddhism is Pali. So the word is sutta. There are 17,000 Suttas. And suttas are defined as teachings, lessons, practices, stories, histories, biographies, exclamations. There isn't a single sutta where somebody goes up to the Buddha and says, hey, teach me about this, this Buddhism. I want to learn. There isn't a single one where he says, all right, sit and meditate. Because it doesn't work that way. Because we all recognize it when we try and meditate that the mind just starts going. And, and we ask ourselves, why can't I be free of thoughts? Why is this so hard? Why am I bad at meditating? The Buddha never said you should meditate first. It's too hard. We have to clear our mind. But what fills our mind when we're trying to meditate? We replay conversations. We have conversations with people that we want to have. We think about the past where we were hurt. We think about the past where we hurt others. So we feel regret. We feel remorse. We think about a future that we wish we had. So, you know, we, we, all of these things represent essentially craving, desire, or, you know, I wish I didn't say this, bad behavior. I wish I didn't want this, this longing. If we can start working with those things before we start cultivating a practice in meditation, then we actually start quieting the mind before we start a process of meditating to the point where we're finally ready to actually sit down on cushion and say, you know what? I'm gonna start a meditation practice. We've almost already established mindfulness within our mind. So we actually sit down for maybe even the very first time we meditate with the mind that's already clear, free of conversations, imaginary conversations with people who aren't there, free of regret and remorse of things that we've said or things that we've done or things that people have said or done to us free of the desire for a future that doesn't exist right now. But how do we do that? The way the Buddha actually instructed what is called a gradual path in Buddhism, it starts with, and this is a bit of a loaded word in Western culture, but it starts with basic virtue. What is basic virtue? Basic virtue, and you hit it when you said non-harm, living a life non-harmfully. Ahimsa. What that basically means is we start cultivating a practice of using our speech skillfully, 
we're truthful, but not truthful just to the point of being truthful, but being altruistic with our word, coming at our speech with a right, with the right intention of being helpful to others, beneficial. And we speak in ways that are kind and loving and compassionate, but that's just ways that we speak. We also wanna think that way because how we think gets reflected in the things that we say. But we also wanna start behaving in ways that supports living non-harmfully. Because when we stop speaking harshly to others, when we stop interrupting others, when we stop insulting others, when we stop doing these things, people stop doing that to us. When we're kinder with our word to others, people reciprocate and they're kinder with their words to us. In the same way that if you smile at a stranger, there's a good chance that they're gonna smile back at you. And the more you smile at strangers and the more strangers smile at you, guess what? The better you start feeling. The, the less often you start seeing those around you as potential threats to your happiness, you know? And then we start behaving in ways that's supportive of these conditions as well. And then people start behaving in ways toward us that support that. And again, this just becomes a cyclical process of cultivating kindness, compassion, patience, generosity. And these, again, these are loaded words in, in Western culture, but they're also remarkably powerful techniques to cultivating inner silence, inner peace, inner contentment and resilience. I mean, I'm speaking not just from personal experience, but also from working with literally hundreds of students, you know, whether they were professionals or pre-monastics along this path. So is there something simple that we could start doing? The answer is not necessarily. It depends because working with our egos can be very difficult because like an imaginary friend, when we start targeting them, inevitably they start defending themselves. And a lot of us have experienced that, that we've had Piccadilly or, you know, personality quirks that we've been trying to work on, but we even consciously resist working on, I'd rather do this or no, this is too hard. But when we actually consciously get good at it, our subconscious ego starts pushing back. And that's when things start getting a little scary because we start tearing down the stories that we've told about ourselves on who we are. And we need to be able to kind of wipe that slate clean. But, okay, all of that said, from a practical perspective, one of the ways that we could start working on this is just recognizing that old adage that treat, we should treat others the way we wish to be treated. Be kinder. Be more patient. Be more compassionate. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. We often tell children, just be patient. If it were so easy, we'd all be so much more patient because I don't know anybody whose parents at some point didn't say, just be patient. We actually have to recognize that patience is a skill. It's not just something that we just do, but so are so many of these other quote unquote virtues that I mentioned, compassion, kindness. These are skills that we can develop. And we have to understand that skills, just like any skill, whether you wanna learn how to swim or play the piano takes time but it also takes determination and diligence. But when you understand that there's an end result that can ultimately free you of that undercurrent of dissatisfaction, of unhappiness, of uncertainty, of fear, of impatience, then suddenly that carrot that's hanging up on that stick in front of you is ultimately so much more compelling. And the nice thing about this Buddhist path is as you start applying the techniques, in this gradual path, you actually start noticing that there's an attenuation in these negative or afflicted states of mind. And as they start attenuating, as they start reducing just naturally, you start feeling calmer. And if you could start feeling a little bit calmer and then apply a little bit more of the tools and techniques, then you recognize that you could feel a little bit more calm. And when you start doing that, you recognize that happiness isn't a personality trait like, oh, Steve, he's just such a happy person. No, happiness is also a skill. And if it's a skill, just like any skill, it could be learned, cultivated. And when you get really good, it could be mastered. You can actually master being happy and actually become, you know, like a certifiably happy person. But 
it's not good enough, again, to just say, well, I need to be more patient. We need to understand how to do that. It's a much bigger topic, but we can start by recognizing that all people, all people without, without exception, ourselves included, want two things. We want to be happy and we want to be free of unhappiness. And we will do everything that we can within our tool set and our skill set and our knowledge and our experience in order to attain that. But because so many people are kind of winging it in life, because nobody ever taught us about patience, nobody ever taught us about contentment or happiness, let alone said that these are skills. I mean, so many people think that these are personality traits. And if they're personality traits, you're either born with it or you're not. And again, going back to what I said earlier, that's a very limited mindset on our own human potential for change, for improvement, for happiness. So when we can understand that we and all other sentient beings, all other humans that are out there, all other animals, perform everything that they think, say, and do are motivated ultimately by a desire to be happy or to be free of unhappiness, we now understand what drives them. So when people do things to us or we find ourselves in difficult situations, they aren't actually doing it to us. It's not that personal. They're simply trying to be happy or free of suffering in the ways that only they know how to do it. Nobody's taught them better. And since we can't control how other people behave, what we can start learning how to do is control how we respond to other people's bad behaviors. And that learning process starts with well, okay, so I'm a Buddhist, so I'm going to come at this from a Buddhist perspective, obviously, right? There are other modalities that exist out there. Um, but it, from a Buddhist perspective, it starts with, you know, picking up a book on the Four Noble Truths. And there's a great book um, called, well, The Four Noble Truths by uh, a Tibetan Buddhist by the name of Geshe Suring, which is spelled T-S-E-R-I-N-G. And, you know, I'm not connected with him in any way. I'm actually, I've read many books on the Four Noble Truths. What I like about that one is that it's ultimately quite practical. There are elements in that book that I think um, are probably not worth, you know, um, spending a lot of time thinking about because they're metaphysical, but it does a great job of kind of explaining what these Four Noble Truths are. And ultimately, the purpose of understanding the Four Noble Truths, and you don't have to be a Buddhist to benefit from this, is recognizing, one, that, you know, there's suffering in life. And suffering is a strong word. So let me just explain that very briefly. Suffering can be, again, ultimately, the unbelievable pain of losing somebody that we care and love for so much. Or something as annoying as just hitting one red light after another when you're trying to get to the place. From a Buddhist perspective, that's suffering. It's just suffering is essentially when something arises in your mind, it just its presence immediately breaks your sense of contentment, immediately breaks your sense of peace of mind, of safety. That's suffering. And it comes in a huge range. So we have to understand that first noble truth that there is suffering in life. That just to be alive, you know, we will experience conditions that cause suffering. But so often, you know, we, we kind of get that from an academic perspective, but that's not good enough because then we're chasing money. We're chasing that promotion. We think we'll be happy if we get a beautiful spouse or that, that house or this job or like, like there's some sort of magic number that we have that many digits in our bank accounts. All of our problems will be solved. So we're living under this, this delusion that there's somehow something we can get from the outside that will make us happy. But it doesn't work that way. So fundamentally understanding that there is suffering in life, when suffering happens, despite having a beautiful spouse or a caring spouse or a lovely house or a comfortable job that pays us well, that we're still going to experience loss. We're still going to experience fear, dissatisfaction. And suddenly we stop clinging and identifying so deeply to those moments, those periods. And when we stop identifying with, we get to work with them with more fluidity and stop letting, stop holding on to them so tightly. And then there's that second noble truth that explains where all the suffering is coming from. And I kind of touched on that. It's, it's our craving. It's our craving to have the things that we want. And it's our craving to be free of the things that we don't want. It's the suffering that we experience when we're parted from the things that we love so deeply. 
But Buddhism isn't saying that you, you got to stop wanting things. And, it is, and Buddhism also isn't saying that you, you, you should be happy with, want, with having things that you don't like. It isn't saying that at all. What's saying, what it's saying is that you should stop identifying with it. Stop anchoring your happiness on having the things that you want and not having the things that you don't want. We can still want, we could still enjoy, we could still strive to, to have a great job and to make you know, a lot of money, to be happy, to, to find you know, a counterpart in our life that's supportive and compassionate, you know, to want good things for our children, for our pets, for our friends, for our family members. But we stop attaching to it. We stop wrapping our ego around these things. You know, I'm striving for, you know, continued progress along this Buddhist path. I still enjoy, you know, having comfort in my life, you know, but it, I just don't crave these things. So that means I get to enjoy them mindfully in real time. You know, one of the greatest examples or one of the most classic examples is, you know, you get that one favorite dish. You get it once a year, you know, maybe, maybe it's somebody, a loved one that makes it for you on your birthday. And, you know, as your birthday is approaching, you know, in 30, 45 days, you start thinking, oh, I'm going to have this dish. I can't wait. Right. And that anticipation. And then you finally get that dish and you're eating it. And you're like, oh, this is so good. This is great. I love this. And then you start thinking, oh, I wish I can have this more than just a once a year. Why can't this person make it this for me more often? When, when is the next time I'm going to have it? And next thing you know, you look down at the plate and half of it is gone. You haven't even tasted it. And then, and then that recognition sets in and then you start eating and you're like, oh, this is so good. I love this. I can't wait till my next birthday. Oh no, it's running out. There's only a couple bites left. Oh, and I've missed it. We spend this entire time wanting something that we already have. That's craving. When we can allow ourselves to unhook from that craving, from the realizing that this meal is so temporary and we have it so infrequently, so infrequently then we get to be mindfully present with that meal. And what that means is with each bite, we feel the weight of the food within our mouth. We notice the nuance of the flavors and of the taste. We feel its texture. We feel it as we're chewing it and we swallow and we enjoy every moment of it. That's presence. That's letting go. These are the words that you know, we keep hearing being pinged around in the Western mindfulness movement. Presence. Be present. Let go. And you'll experience happiness. But again, to get to that place where you could let go of wanting more of that food, wanting it to last, wondering when's the next time you're going to have it, lamenting why you only have it once a year and just thinking over and over again how delicious this is and how good it is, to getting to that place where you're actually mindfully eating, tasting, feeling, smelling, experiencing each bite. That's a road and we need teachers to help us. You know, this Buddhism stuff, it's complicated and it's hard. If it were so easy, then all these meditators that have spent 10, 15 years meditating, you know, they would exhibit all the qualities of the Buddha. But, you know, 15 years of meditation and somebody cuts them off on the road, boom, hand on the horn, fingers up, and they're swearing. Where did all that equanimity and peace of mind go to, right? And I work with, I've worked with tons of people like that because we have to start cultivating these basic skills basic skills in patience, kindness, understanding, generosity. And again, we just can't do that by, be, by telling ourselves we're going to be patient or by, by saying mantras to ourselves. Um, unfortunately, we need teachers. And Buddhism the Buddha never taught this stuff thinking that the Dharma was going to somehow get printed into books and, and you know, pushed around all around the world or put on the internet. Um, this stuff was up until the late 1800s, the stuff of monastics. And people would go to monastics for teachings. We need teachers along this path because what are we doing? We're working with the mind. Once again, back to the very beginning of this conversation, Buddhism is a philosophy of mind that ultimately tries to uproot our clinging and craving to our ego. And that will defend itself to the nth degree. And this is hard stuff. And teachers help us understand where we need to course correct our practice, but also they help us work with our Piccadilly, our personalities, the things that we're strong at, the things that we're weak at, and our varying energy levels from day to day, week to week. And they also help us understand that as we make progress along the path toward contentment, toward happiness, that what got us to where we are today are not the same tools, techniques, practices, mantras that will take us to the next step. Just like in mathematics, if you're 
at the level of advanced calculus, you're not still doing two to three hours of basic arithmetic. You need to let go of the things that, that got you to where you are and start working on the things that get you to where you want to be. And in Buddhism, that means an ever-changing suite of practices based on the amount of progress that you're making. And that's why teachers are so important. And people go from one retreat center to the next, listen to this Dharma talk to the next, let's read this book to the next, not understanding that that's not how you do it. And not also not understanding, because when people think of Buddhism, they think of one overarching umbrella, but there are actually hundreds of different forms of Buddhism, so different from one another that they actually teach from different root texts and have completely different interpretations of core fundamentals of Buddhism. Yes. So that, I, I, yeah, yeah, I've experienced that myself because I was I started off on the path as a as a Zen Buddhist and I mm -hmm. was practicing that for several years and then I was living in a place they didn't have a Zen Buddhist center so I ended up um, studying Tibetan Buddhism and it was completely different, <laughs> right? Like totally different from Zen Buddhism. I mean, the fundamentals are very similar, but the the teachings, the Dharma, as you say, were very, very different. Um, and so it was a real kind of like I had to reset, like how to look at things. But um, yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it's uh, it's a it's an amazing path for people um, that are seeking some support. And especially now with these challenging times and um, with what's happening in the world. I mean, there is a lot of violence. There's a lot of fear. I, I woke up today actually um i have this ability to tap into that collective consciousness and i was like wow there's a lot going on out there right now and so i'm very very aware and i, I don't know if you can speak to that for those of us people that are very empathic um what what kind of advice can you give people like us so that we're not as impacted by what we're perceiving and what we're picking up on from the collective consciousness. Right. So this is a little bit of, an, uh, of a controversial statement that I'm going to make, um, but it really kind of comes down to guarding our minds. Mm -hmm. We expose ourselves so liberally to the violence of others. We watch the news, we watch violent movies, we you know, listen to music that um, has subtly violent lyrics. You know, we engage in conversations with others about, you know, bad things that people have done to us and, you know, how we feel that we need to behave and how we get back retribution, especially in the West. There's such a strong culture of, dare I say, revenge. We've got a revenge culture, you know, you know, um, leave the guns, take the cannoli, you know, um, it's it's woven into our culture in a way that breeds so much fear. You know, we, we hear that, you know, the news and websites, they draw clicks and likes and all and shares because what are they selling? They're selling ultimately fear. They're selling violence. They're selling, you know, um, things that cause us to get up in arms, politics, all of these things. Right. So we feed our minds with all of this. So no wonder, no wonder we experience such unrest in our mind, so much fear or anger and security. It's what we're consuming. We are literally products of what we consume. So if you want to stop feeling the pain of all of this, you need to either do one of two things. You either need to start dialing down at a very fundamental level the amount of fear, anger, rage you're consuming and exposing yourself to, and or exposing yourself to the opposite. So when I was much earlier on in this Buddhist practice, um, I stopped watching the news because the news is one bad story after another, is one violent story after another. Because violence isn't just, you know, guns or murder or attacks. It's, it's also, there's economic violence. It's, you know, the rich not supporting the poor. It's people that are starving on a planet that is filled with resources, more than enough resources for every single person on this planet to have all of the food and water that they need. That's a form of violence. You know, when we start redefining what violence is and start protecting our mind from it, it fundamentally changes our capacity for us to feel love for ourselves and for others. But also along this path, I started watching videos on people being good to one another, you know, people helping other people, you know, people that were experiencing deep states of, of 
of abuse and the people that were helping them. And when we could start recognizing that humans are actually quite good, instead of consuming just an onslaught of how bad people are, that starts changing how we perceive the world around us, people within this world. And we stop recognizing or fearing other people as a threat. You know, even when I was growing up, we used to, door, we, doors, we wouldn't lock all of our doors, you know? But we get to a place now where we actually lock our cars that are parked in private garages. And we certainly wouldn't leave our front doors unlocked anymore, you know? And is the world really that violent or are we just living in a world where we're so afraid of everybody else? You know, it's just, we need to start dialing down the violence that we're consuming. If we're having a rough day or we have a stressful day and we get home and we plop on the sofa and we turn on Netflix and we put on a movie or a show where people are, you know, killing each other, shooting each other, you know, and there's blood and there's gore or people are being sarcastic or, you know, manipulating one another. And that's our form of entertainment. It nuances our mind. It slopes our mind in ways that take us away from love, compassion, peace. And those qualities, love, compassion, peace, these are natural qualities that are within us, but we obscure them with what we're consuming. And when we could start dialing down the consumption of this, this toxic material, naturally, the mind starts calming down. Naturally, we start feeling safer. Naturally, the fear, the anxiety, the anger stops being such a strong undercurrent and starts just naturally becoming a latent one. And it starts attenuating. So it kind of comes down to saying, hey, be more mindful of what you're consuming and recognize that everything you consume from your eyes, your ears, your nose, your mouth, your mind is touching you. It touches the fabric of your experience, but it doesn't take much like a poorly woven rug to be able to just yank on a thread and watch the tapestry start to fall apart. And that starts by being much more mindful of what you're consuming and recognizing that what you're consuming is dangerous. It is dangerous to your peace of mind, your contentment, your sense of safety. And I guess I'll stop there because <laughs> we're running out of time. <laughs> we are, we are. And I just wanted to see if anybody listening in has a question before we end the show. If you have a burning question for Michael, I'd like to give you the opportunity to come in live. Or if you're feeling shy, you can write your question in the comments box. So I just wanted to give that opportunity for anybody. So please... Um, this is an amazing opportunity to have Michael on the show. He's uh, clearly very knowledgeable and um, really uh, appreciative of all the wisdom you've shared with us today, Michael. Is, um, Thank you, Is Michelle. there anything else that you want to tell us about? Like, um, do you have any programs coming up, either online or in person, that you would like to share with the audience? You know, I do. There is um, an event that I'm going to be, uh, I'm, I'm got a discussion on the introduction to the Four Noble Truths. Uh, one moment. Wonderful. If you could just give me a moment and I will get a link. Okay. I'm just going to put the title in the comments box, Introduction to the Four Noble Truths. Wonderful. All right. So it is, um, I'll give you the website. It's a bit of a long one. It's Mindfulness Studio. So it's M-I-N-D-F-U-L-N-E-S-S-Studio. Is there, is there any, you, any way you could, Yeah, you could type it. It would probably be easier if you could type it in the comments box. All right, box. how do I do this? There's a little a box at the bottom of your phone screen. If you're on the phone, click on that box, and then you can type it in the comments. That would be awesome. Yeah, as I'm sure. And that's going to be an in-person event? It is virtual. Virtual. Oh, awesome. So for those of you who are living in other countries and uh, perhaps stateside or in Mexico, Canada, um, that would be time zone friendly because Michael is living here in Merida with me. I'm well, not with me personally, but in Merida. And uh, so we are on the central standard time. So it's very time zone friendly for all of you in the United States, 
Canada and even for people, who knows, in other countries who want to stay up late at night or whatever, depending on when this, um, when this uh, program will be offered. All right. So I can't type in because it's asking me to log in, but I can give you an easy URL, which is beingpeacefully.com slash events. Oh, that's much better. Yes. Be so beingpeacefully.com slash events. Awesome. I can do that. And the event is called the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism. Uh -huh. It's going to be at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern on Monday, December 12th. And it's going to be first uh, kind of like this, uh, an interactive conversation with a moderator who's going to be asking me about the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, followed by an interactive Q&A with those who are attending. Okay, and you said it's, what time is it going to be? Um, 6 p.m. Pacific? 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern on Monday, December 12th. Okay, wonderful. Okay, let me see. Well, wonderful. And I will also... Uh, share that link on my actual Podbean webpage in case listeners come in after the recording is uploaded. They can access that information from from the Podbean webpage as well. And uh, this has been a fascinating uh, interview. Thank you so much for your time, Michael. Um, we really appreciate um, your sharing all of this amazing information with us. Do you have any last parting words that you would like to say before we end the show? I think I'll just say this, that our human potential to, to improve is only hindered by our thought that we can't. And if you wish to cultivate these skills, then find, find the right resources that find a teacher, find somebody interactive that you can work with who can start to learn about your particular personality, your strengths and your weaknesses. Be clear on what you're looking for, that you want to be free of agitation or anger or impatience or self-doubt or insecurity and, and understand, you know, whether or not this person can help you and then work with it. But don't just do it casually because life change, personality change, it's hard work, but it can yes. be done and it's so yes. worthwhile. Yes. I encourage everybody to do this because it fundamentally changes how we experience life. Yes, absolutely. And it is my belief that when we want to change the consciousness on the planet, we have to start with changing ourselves. Yes. And then we become the invitation for everybody else in our lives to change. So um, we have to start with ourselves, absolutely. Absolutely. Michelle, thank you so much for having me. This was yeah. a really fun time. I enjoyed having this conversation with you and being able to short, share some of these things with your audience. Thank you again. You're so welcome, Michael, and have a great day. And goodbye to everyone. Um, thank you so much for your support. Please uh, follow me um, on Instagram at Spirit Weaver Gal and uh, check out my website at spiritweaverjourneys.com for upcoming programs. Um, and thank you everyone for being here today. Lots of love. Blessings.